Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome once again to the Job Shop Show. If you're thinking about buying a shop or are in the middle of it yourself, this episode is for you. It's also for you if you're thinking of selling. Our guest is currently in the middle of trying to buy a shop of his own. He'll remain anonymous because he's currently employed while he's looking, and we don't want to jeopardize his job. What I didn't expect in this conversation was that he started out looking for a small shop within his own financial savings and constraints. As the search has matured, he's expanded the hunt to larger shops. Our mystery man explains how he will now be able to finance a larger purchase as he does have limited funds. He also discusses what makes a shop attractive to him and things that are problems which make him walk immediately. His story is wonderful in another regard. As he came to the U.S. 15 years ago as an immigrant suing the American dream, and yes, that is what he calls it, he shares how he clawed his way through college, met his wife, and finally got his green card. He is so appreciative of the opportunity he's been given, and it was such an honor to hear his story and now share it with you. Let's begin. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Hi, Jay. Thank you for having me here. You had reached out to me on LinkedIn. You are in the process of trying to buy a manufacturing company and you had some questions for me and we spoke and I thought your story was really compelling and something that would have a lot of value for the listeners of the show. I wanted to have this conversation and get it recorded so that others who may be in the process of buying a company or maybe thinking about buying a company, maybe some of the things that you've learned will help them and help them narrow in and either be able to actually buy a company because that's not a foregone conclusion that's going to happen or structure in a way that ultimately works to their benefit. And you know, hopefully the, the seller as well, because if you structure it right, it really is a, a win-win for both parties. You had reached out to me again on LinkedIn. Why, why me? How did you find me? So I've been following your podcast for some time just because wow. I'm I'm a mechanical engineer by background. I 
I like machine shops. I like anything mechanical, machines, stuff like that. So I've been following your podcast. And when I started this journey of acquiring a company, I, you know, there's a lot of machine shops that come across my desk, a lot of fabrication shops. And I thought you were one of the experts that I knew about. And I had a few questions about a good shop. And so I reached out to you. Um, and I, I have a question about that for you. Since I started looking at this, the big thing is we come across a lot of machine shops, a lot of fabrication shops, mm-hmm. varying in size. Some between, you know, most of them are between five to 10 people. And then there's some that are over uh, 10 to 25 people. And then very few that I see that are over 25 people. My question to you would uh, was how, what is it that, let me step back. A lot of uh, people in this space think machine shops, fabrication shops, because of the quantity of these shops, it's a very commoditized business very hard to make any money in and the the constant advice is stay away from commoditized stuff but mm-hmm. there is a, a big chunk of companies that actually make money in machining and fabrication so what is it that differentiates a a medium shop from a good shop i've got some ideas in my head but i wanted to reach out and ask you if you were looking at two shops, what would you consider? Yeah, it's okay. And what is good? It's a really good question. And I would say that without having any evidence to back up my answer, a good shop is one that says no, meaning that they know what they're good at and what they're not good at. And they say no to the stuff that they're not good at so they can be the best they can be for the customers who are in their sweet spot. And Mm -hmm. let's say a more average shop is not that disciplined and they take whatever comes in the door. Now, can I add a little nuance to this when you look at a business, right? When I approach a broker, all I get is revenue, EBITDA, you know, a couple of, you know, how much is repeat business, how big the shop is, maybe number of machines, right? It's very basic information that I have to, to move ahead in the process. I have to kind of gauge in my head and kind of put the shop in somewhere between okay and good. When it's bad, kind of, you know, in my head, anything below and tell me if this is correct 15 percent ebitda and up great good shop 10 to 15 okay shop below 10 something's wrong i would say that those are pretty good ranges i have not looked at the sheets that brokers are providing and Mm -hmm. with the size shops that you talked about before it really depends if they are adding back in the owner's salary because that distorts a lot of it and a shop may show a lower EBITDA. However, the owner is taking out uh, Mm -hmm. the money and at the same time they may present it to you and there's really no money. The EBITDA has no money for 
owner slash president slash manager at the top. So you pay yourself a reasonable salary and boom, they give it a shot. Probably a really good indicator is if you sign the NDA and you find out who the shop is, you look at their website, the EBITDA, and their website looks like it was done up ago or so, then they are probably making money despite themselves and they've got something going on that you might want to dig deeper into. Mm-hmm. Does certifications, because when I look at a machine shop, buying a machine or leasing a machine, any Tom, Dick and Harry can do that, right? Yeah. But in my head, if they are ISO certified, they're better than a normal non-ISO certified machine. If they have AS uh, certification, that's even better. If they have the people to run, say, a five-axis machine. If they have the talent, that's separating. Mm-hmm. If they do value-added services. So it's not just machining a block. It is machining, plating, assembling, and shipping. If they do all of that, that would differentiate them. I think the value-add piece would get me excited. It's not normally what shops do however that makes you a stickier supplier for a shop and then it's also a skill set that you can build upon certifications uh, if you're as certified then then you're really in the game iso i don't know it's uh, it can be you can be following it you you can just have a piece of paper and you know i look at some companies who are ISO certified and they can tell you why they make bad parts all the time. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Doesn't mean they're making good parts. They're actually following it. So, yeah. It's at least better than a shop that does not have it. Right. I would think so. It's a differentiator and it at least shows that they've made investments at some point in time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Okay. We jumped into some great questions and I want to step back and get some of your story. So we have some context of why you're looking to become an owner and take a jump from the corporate world. How did you get to the point where you are now saying, I think I want to own a shop and specifically in the manufacturing world. What's your story? So mechanical engineer by education, but I've been working for a Fortune 500 industrial company for more than a decade. So my background is very industrial, very mechanical. And then I did my MBA and that's where I was exposed to something called search funds, which let's, yeah. yeah, let's. Let's bookmark the search funds because okay. that's a really interesting topic. I'd like to hear, though, even mm-hmm. go back. You were not born in the U.S., so right. how did you get to the U.S.? And why? I'm really curious. Why did you uproot yourself from another country and mm-hmm. come here and make this your home? So the whole idea was... Um, you know, opportunity, the American dream, right? Everyone in 
across the world has heard about the american dream and how much opportunity the american economy has like 25 trillion dollar economy largest in the world uh if you can work your uh, ass off and get to the us you can make it right so for me education was one of the routes to get to the us legally so came here for my masters what did, did you that- have to do in india from the education standpoint because it's really competitive as i understand it to get into engineering school so you had to really do something to differentiate yourself to get your bachelor's degree candidly actually there's a lot of engineering colleges in india there's a billion people to cater to those billion people there's a lot of engineering colleges of course there are tiers right the top mm-hmm. tier is extremely hard to get into honestly i am not in from the top tier i'm not that great an engineer which i realized before i came to the us i worked in india after getting my bachelor's degree i realized that once th- i worked as an engineer in design for automotive companies and i realized that you know engineering is one little cog in this big massive company and it drove me to look at the other things that make a company sustain and grow so when i applied for my masters i realized i wanted to go beyond technical stuff and mm-hmm. so i applied for a a program that's called engineering management which is like mm-hmm. a hybrid between engineering and management my parents are i mean they're decently well off they were decently and they still are decently well off so i i had the resources to get me to the us mm-hmm. and pay for one semester three courses and mm-hmm. uh, when i got here um i put all my money down paid for it i had about 200 dollars left i didn't get any funding to begin with so i went to a school which was known for giving funding to international students mm. and kept my fingers crossed that hopefully by the end of the semester i'll get something struggled through there i remember lived on 400 dollars a month food wow. living everything how did you do that it was sharing a bedroom with another person finding really cheap housing not the best mm. no cell phone no car Uh, cut down on expenses as much as you can right no eating out my my indulgence was a thursday evening special for students a dollar 50 at hardy's uh for a coke and burger that's the only indulgence i had and that too only after i got a job at the library that could pay for it i just couldn't get myself my to to spend my parents money on indulgences so struggled through that at the end of the semester i got funding so i made it through that got some funding studied tried to accelerate the course so that i can get a job quickly finished my masters in a year and a half and then got a job offer from the company that i work for and have been there since yeah so i wow. uh, started in quality and moved functions and that's what then i did an mba to move more into the commercial side of the company to understand the customer facing aspect of 
a company, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, so to do that, I did my MBA and then was able to move over to the commercial side. During your journey here, and first of all, I am blown away. The desire and the willingness that you demonstrated, I mean, you didn't have a choice. If you wanted to succeed here, mm-hmm. you did what you had to do. Yep. And that, I, I I appreciate you making that effort because that's, you are living the American dream. Even if you don't buy a company, you you have created an opportunity for yourself. And along that journey, you have gotten married and you have two young children now. Yep. Question I have is you have a stable job. I think mm-hmm. it pays pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Do you see that it is risky at this point in your life now that you have a young family to go out and be an entrepreneur and leave the mothership? There's definitely a risk. The way I think about it is, yes, if I do take this entrepreneurial path, there is a risk. I might, depending on the path I take, I might have a personal guarantee on a massive loan, a couple of millions in loan. But I also look at the other side saying, sure, I have a risk here, but I, uh, if I continue here, one is the risk of regret of not doing it. Jeff Bezos has this really great saying where he says, you know, I, I had this regret framework. If there is something that in my deathbed or so, something like that, he says, if in my deathbed, I regret not having done that, then I will go do it now, right? I, even I'm th- I think of it in this way that if I don't do this now, first of all, it's going to get harder. I have kids. It's not never going to be easy, <laughs> right? right. Uh, now is the easiest point. And will I regret it if I don't do it? I definitely mm. will if I don't try. Yeah. And then I'm in an industry that's very cyclic. Every three years, there's a downturn. You know, there's layoffs all across the industry. Thankfully, I've made it through a bunch of them, but I might lose my job in the next one. I don't know. Mm. There is the risk either side. I have a supportive spouse. My kids are young. So the worst case scenario is I won't make it. But I still have runway. You know, I've I've made it to this point. I don't see myself not being able to make it back to this point if I fail. So worst case is not terrible. Well, you have a kindred spirit in me. And I don't know how much of the rapid story you know. I started the company in 2001. Actually, bought a very small fabricator three days after September 11th. And I had essentially put in my family's life savings, and I had an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a one-month-old when I started the company. And I felt the same way. I had the opportunity to step away because of the uncertainty at 9-11, and I thought about it obviously really hard. And decided that I would rather try and fail than not try at all because that would just eat me up. Yes. Honestly, yes, definitely. 
said, I'm going to give it my best shot. And if it doesn't work, and I've come to the realization, you're not failing if it doesn't work. Yeah. The, as long as you learn things and it, you can leverage that to whatever you do next in your life. Mm-hmm. You have that dream. And how did you start your process? You have the engineering background, so you probably created a framework of the criteria that you were looking for. Can you tell me about what that looked like initially? Because I know that it's changed over time, but let's go back to the beginning where Mm -hmm. you thought it would go. So when I looked at criteria, a couple of things that that formed the criteria, high criteria is one is what is the industry? For me, industry was going to be industrial manufacturing, distribution, or service. Manufacturing is my first choice, right? Just given my background. Distribution is my secondary one, just because I know within the company that I work for, I've been exposed to the distribution side of the business as well. Service also, just because I was part of manufacturing, I under, I've dealt a lot with companies that deal with servicing, say, a factory, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so starting with that funnel, which a lot of time when you talk to other people who are looking at companies, this is actually quite narrow, a filter already. Second level was location. I don't want to move my family. Buying a company is going to be so consuming anyway. My family has, my spouse has a very good network where we are. And I don't want to put them through more than they really need to. So the location became very tight. So industry, location, then it comes down to size. My initial thought was I want to own 100% equity. I want, that means I want 100% ownership of the company. That then restricts me to how much money I can bring in as my contribution. So say you start then looking at how do you finance this? The These smaller companies, you need SBA 7A loans to help finance. So if I bring in, say, $300,000, the SBA 7A loan allows me to bring 10%. It, it allows me 5%, but there are a lot of conditions tied to that. So I'll keep it easy for now. 10% is the minimum SBA 7A requires, to, requires the owner to put in. So if I bring 300000 that means I can look at a transaction value of $3 million. Mm, Okay. So that's where I started, right? And when I kept those three three criteria, the industry, location, size of the transaction, I was exposed to a lot of smaller places that had employees of maximum maybe 10 people, right? right? Where the owner and the wife are two key employees they're both trying to retire and then the and mostly these were kind of machine shops fabrication places and then the so there's a team leader or a shop floor manager who's been the husband and wife friend for the past 40 years and Mm -hmm. he's in his 60s mid 60s and could retire with the two of them right with the Mm -hmm. husband and wife and that became a very 
fragile situation where he, if I buy it, there's a big uh, threat of those three key people. So two were going to leave anyway, but then the third team leader also might leave, which leaves me to just concentrate on actually probably running a machine, right? That's not where my competency lies. Even though I'm an engineer, I can spend time and figure out how to run a machine, right? Probably be terrible at it, but I could figure it. But it would be a waste of time and not something that I wanted to do. So I had to then modify my criteria to say, I can't change location. The industry, that's what wakes me up. That's what, mm-hmm. it. you know, it's, I can't see myself go run something other than an industrial manufacturing or a distribution place. It wouldn't mm-hmm. excite me. And it better excite you to wake you up and go work like hell, right? It's, it's a lot of work. So I didn't want to change that criteria. So the third criteria of owning 100% Mm-hmm. Was one criteria that I could, I had to flex, right? That, you know, I need to look at transactions where I might not own 100% just to start looking at more opportunities. Right. That would allow you to buy a bigger shop with more people. So you had the redundancies in the, in Correct. the shop. And I also, a couple points, we're recording in September of 23. When did you start the process? January 23 is, I would say, is when I actually, you know, so come back to the bank and yeah. lawyer. Yeah, eight, nine months in. Okay, so that gives us some context that the, you've been doing it for a while, but not a terribly long time. Mm-hmm. So you have expanded to looking for larger shops, and you also are open not only to machine shops, as I understand, or fabricators, but to maybe manufacturers who have their own product. So you're not strictly limited to services or if there was a combination, if they Mm -hmm. did outside machining for other folks and had some product of their own, that would be a good situation for you as well. Yeah, what I found is when you start going higher in revenue opportunities, you do see the machine shops and fabrication places, but you also get to see this world of other stuff, right? Assembly, where where there's a product, Mm. they're assembling the product. They're not necessarily manufacturing everything in-house, but they're assembling it and putting it together. Or bigger service shops, like things like servicing and distribution of a hoist, hoist systems, Mm. conveyor systems, electrical, you know, all the electricals in the factory. You need someone to maintain that. When it goes down, you pick up the phone and call a service guy, right? You start seeing these other things. Otherwise, in the smaller range, I was only seeing machine shops and fabrication shops. Right. So as you expanded that, how did you, you're okay with not being 100% owner. What does that mean? Where is the other money going? Sounds like that you would have partners or equity investors Mm-hmm. how are you thinking about that this may be a good place where we could talk about the search fund model let's do it yeah, yeah. so just some background on what search funds are right search funds are it's a 
financing kind of vehicle where it started in the big business schools started off i think in harvard first of all and then till maybe 5 years back it remained in the top tier of business schools as something that mm-hmm. their students pursued what happens and i'll try to be very simplistic there's a lot of literature that you can read up about this but i'll keep it quite simple it's typically an mba who's finished their mba and wants to go into entrepreneurship doesn't have something someone like me who doesn't have a bright startup idea as in i'm not a zero to one person but i can do a one to two uh-huh. one to three one to four kind of thing right i can take something that exists and grow it so if there's someone like that who wants to get into entrepreneurship search funds um are a good vehicle there's a lot more variation but two big variations of search funds one is a traditional search fund which is me as a student can go to my network and there's a very good network of people existent already to ask them for money to run a search so it can be 200 to 500000 that i can raise to go out and look for a company for 2 years that's the typical timeline so mm-hmm. the investors will give you 200 to 500000 depending on bunch of variables right for you to survive as in live mm-hmm. eat, pay rent and to go look for a company in 2 years when you find the company you go back to those investors and say hey i found this company i'm going to need a couple of million dollars from you guys um you guys will get your initial investment in me for those 2 years gets rolled in as equity and you get kind of a step up so say the investors gave 500,000 right their equity of 500,000 gets rolled into the company that i've brought to them right yes. and it'll get they'll get a step up of say maybe 1.5 to 2 so say if the step up is 2 then their equity will be worth a million dollars right they will get a yeah. million dollars right. worth of equity. and and so in that i'll bring them the the deal if they like the deal they'll fund the deal typically 50% equity 50% debt it can vary i'm giving a very very where does the debt come from do they have a network of people who are willing to provide the net yeah or... there's conventional lenders there's a very big network of these banks mm-hmm. not only banks i'd say non-bank non-banking financial companies also that like to invest in small businesses so there's a big network so it's conventional debt usually not personally guaranteed right because as you go up the deal size you can find companies that are financing that don't require personal guarantees so 50% debt 50% equity and then the company is overall owned by the investors and over time the searcher me as the searcher who found the company will grow equity for up to 25% so starting at the deal signing so the moment the purchase agreement is signed i get 5% okay sorry not 5% 8.3% right 8.3 then okay. another 8.3% is i think after one year right 
And then another 8.3% is given at, you know, when you meet certain IRR hurdles. And I think when the sale of the company happens. So that's the traditional search fund model. So in that ownership is restricted to 25% for me. Okay. 75% for the investors. The second uh, predominant search fund model is a self-funded search, something like I'm doing, but a little uh, mine's a little different take. So in self-funded, the person has their own, typically a little more senior in their career. They have some amount of savings. And so they fund that two-year search process themselves with their own funds right Mm -hmm. so something i'm doing but there's a bunch of people that do this full-time i'm doing it with a job right Mm -hmm. Uh, people that do this just full-time funded through their savings Mm -hmm. when they find a company they can go to there's invest these investors right but typically these self-funded companies are smaller than the traditional search fund so they could be up to like a million to two million in ebitda two million is pushing it but it could vary like from 300 to a million and a half two million in ebitda right typically smaller something that could be financed by sba 7a loan so it would have a personal guarantee so and sba would finance a the big chunk of it and then for the rest of it, you go to the equity investors, right? So say a typical thing would be 70% debt, 15% actually owner, owner carry. So the owner uh-huh. might have about 15% of it. And then yep. 15% from investors. That's the, the cap table. But the ownership in this case can be significantly owned by me, the searcher, because mm-hmm. I'm taking bulk of the risk. I have taken the two-year risk of financing all of this. I meaning, taken... meaning the personal search. guarantee signed by you. Oh no, no, no. The search, searching the deal. Oh, I the be- deal, beforehand. Right? Yeah. Yep. I financed all of that. I financed the due diligence. I would finance anything up to buying the the company, up to the investor signing the check. I would have Mm -hmm. financed it. And then the personal guarantee, right? This is a couple of million dollar loan completely Mm -hmm. signed by me. None of the investors need to sign it because Mm -hmm. they they own less than 20% of the business. If there is an investor that owns more than 20%, SBA requires them to sign a personal guarantee. So that kind of puts a cap on what the investor can actually own. And hence, the searcher ends up owning a big, big, big chunk because of the risk that the searcher is taking. When you say big chunk, what does that mean as a percentage Um, that you would own? Anything from up to, I'd say, 80%. There's been deals that have gone over 80% as well for ownership, but... I would say 80% is like an uh, average. And what sort of controls are put into the operating agreement that text the investors sent you or the 
party that's bringing the deal to the table has so much equity yeah. in the deal. Yeah, that becomes very critical. The agreement between the investors and say me as the owner, right? A mm -hmm. couple of things from my point of view, right? What I'm looking for, say I go down this route of find, uh, doing, I'm, I am doing a self-funded search, but say I go down the route of buying a smaller company that can be financed by an SBA loan and I own 80%, right? What mm -hmm. I'm looking for is long-term investors, right? That a more buy and hold that's my personality buy and hold rather than buy and flip and sell i'm not that kind of a person so what i would look for in an investor is are you willing to hold or you know do you want to sell it if you want to sell it you're probably not something that you know our ideals don't match right uh -huh. and then decision making is something that i want so when i say decision making there's multiple things the things that worry the investors the most is dilution of equity. Uh -huh. uh, they don't want to lose their percentage of ownership. They don't want it to get diluted, right? So uh -huh. they give in saying, you know, any new equity that I bring in needs to be approved by you. But you can also say that, you know, say you go into a company that has employees that are not getting compensated well, you know, you could say, hey, I need 5% equity that I can distribute to employees to, to just show ownership, right? So that the, essentially the operating agreement is quite flexible, but you have to be very careful that you don't spook the investors, right? They don't typically like to see owners pay, not, or the owner, me, paying myself a big salary, without them seeing a return. So then uh, there's a point over there that, you know, my salary is going to be X number of dollars increased at say 5% per year, right? Mm -hmm. At least those two are big. Uh, and then reporting requirements, right? How often are you going to present details on how the company is doing financials? How often are you going to have board meetings? Those kind of things, that cadence of reporting is also very critical to investors. And there's a whole bunch of things that the investors can find important, but it's something that you negotiate with them. You propose something and then you negotiate. Right? It sounds like you're moving up the revenue. The You're looking at larger companies. How did you develop your network of investors so that you have the financial ability to do so? One is... When I first started, right, because of my criteria being so so tight and mm -hmm. me wanting to own 100%, I didn't look beyond what I needed. Mm -hmm. But when I said I need to get investors in, then you, have, then you start searching, okay, how do I get these investors in? And that's when you start digging into the search fund network. The, there's an SMB network on Twitter. It's a great network for SMB owners or people who want to go buy SMBs. Right? What is SMB? Oh, small and medium business, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a massive search fund network, first of all, and then there's an SMB network on Twitter. It's very, very active, very, very helpful. So just talking to people within these two networks, you know, they tell me, uh, or they, they, when I first started looking, they said, 
you know, you get a good deal, the money is there, right? There are people, that's the beauty of this country, right? $25 trillion economy, lots of wealthy people who are just waiting for an opportunity to invest in something that's going to give them a good return, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the returns on this, the, the investors that, that invest in this asset class almost, right? It's an asset class, mm-hmm. get over 30% IRR, which is an awesome return. Is that, you said that you're looking for long-term investors who don't want to sell. So you say a 30% IRR, which... IRR meaning internal rate of return mm-hmm. so that if you held it for five years, it'd be compounding at 30% each of those five years. And as the value grows, it's it's growing significantly. You're young. You may want to own this company for 20 years. Is there a mechanism in there potentially for you to buy out the other shareholders over time? Or I'm thinking about it. If I invested money, I don't want to wait 20 years for I see a return, is there a preferred return that goes mm-hmm. to the investors along the way? And when does it start? And if it starts essentially from the day of the deal, does it maybe get deferred, meaning it's counted, but it's not paid out until mm-hmm. you have criteria? Or maybe it's all of these. What, which, how does all this happen if I'm an investor and I I don't want to wait 20 years? Of course. So there's... Uh, like you said, it can work in many, many different ways, right? You can start from zero payments for five years and then investors get all their money at the end at five years if you sell the company, right? And then it'll be, you know, to match, to get a 30% IRR at the end of five years, you better have an awesome deal mm-hmm. on sale to make up for all that lost time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from that, that being in one extreme, that no payments for five years, to what I typically model is uh, an, a 10% preferred return mm-hmm. every year, right? Now that can be paid out quarterly or six months, but essentially for a year, your return will be 10%, right? And I want to put some numbers on that. So sure. if you had a million dollars of EBITDA, which I'm sure you'd be thrilled with. It's not 20% or a 10% of a million. It's the investors own 20% of the company. So that is a portion which they're getting a return on is the 10% of the 200,000. Is that so? It's the 10% on the money that they invested. Right. So on the money they invested. Right. So say that I got $500,000 from investors, a 10% yes. uh, return would be $50,000 for them. So it doesn't, you need the EBITDA supported. I wasn't thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't, as long as the EBITDA supports it and probably there's got to be a, obviously there's EBITDA earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So there's got to be substantial EBITDA beyond that 50,000 because taxes got to be paid. There may be principal on the debt that has to yeah. be paid. If you, what if you're a long-term you- investor, yeah, I was going to say, if you're a long-term investor, you want the company to be spending money on new equipment and expanding facilities and hiring new people, which means payroll before you get, you know, the mm-hmm. cash flow thing. It's, 
so I could see that not happening. Maybe the preferred is not paid for the first year or the second year, yeah. and then only criteria. And then if it if the funds aren't there, it's accumulated. Mm -hmm. And when the funds are there, it the gets investor paid. gets paid. Gotcha. Yeah. And then this is a lot of this is defined when you take an SBA loan, the banks, each bank has a different criteria, but there's a debt mm -hmm. service, service coverage ratio. Yes. Which is basically the best way to look at it is we, we're talking EBITDA, but EBITDA is not a very good measure. It's not cash flow. It's not the money that gets left over at the end of the day. So cash flow, which which has already taken capital expenditure into consideration, that is you have to buy machines to just keep your current capacity going. Mm -hmm. You have to reduce your EBITDA from that. Uh, you have to reduce your capital expenditure from that EBITDA to come to cash flow. That cash flow has to be a certain multiple of the amount of debt that you have to pay, right? Only then the bank will underwrite the deal, right? And every bank has a different multiple. And so that kind of puts a, a, a cap on how much the investors can get, right? And mm -hmm. how much you can actually pay for the company also, right? Sure. That really yeah. controls yeah. the valuation. Yeah. What other things are you thinking about in your search process now? If someone's listening are there any nuggets that you can share that might save them some time or pain what i would definitely say and this is something that the traditional search fund folks follow and people who have a very tight criteria also follow and investors in the space right they say make sure you don't cast your net too wide right get your criteria a little tight so it's a little manageable so for example, mm -hmm. mine is manufacturing, right? When I look at a deal, like we talked earlier about what is a good and a bad EBITDA, right? Good, a bad and okay and a good EBITDA, right? Mm -hmm. If you focus your search a little bit, you're able to put the time and effort into understanding an industry, understanding what's bad, okay, and good in an industry. And hence, you're able to very quickly value a company, at least within a certain range, right? And you're able to move fast. In this space, they say time kills deals, right? If you take too much time to respond to a broker who sent you yes. a, a SIM, yep. they've moved on. They probably got 10 offers and there's an LOI already signed. You've lost your opportunity, right? So focus, reduce, tighten your focus, understand an industry. Now, within that industry, if you don't find opportunities, then go ahead, okay, broaden your search or go to some other industry. But again, study it well, so that you can make a very educated decision on how much you want to pay and what you can actually do to grow the business, right? The, because mm -hmm. that's what you want to do when you buy the business, right? So you need to spend some time in understanding the business that you're going after. Mm. Okay. It'll be very time very well spent. The other thing I would also say is use this network. There are 
people in this network that buy and sell companies day in and day out, right? Whether it's investors, investors is a more obvious thing. Okay, I might need mm-hmm. money, so I need to go find investors. But the not so obvious is, and where people might think, you know, might try to be a little stingy is the quality of earnings report and getting a good M&A lawyer, right? Uh-huh. Uh, there's plenty of good people in this network and they will all tell you, you might feel that the cost of a quality of earnings report, which could vary you know, from 10,000 to 30, 40,000 and a good lawyer could, that could also vary in that range, right? They are worth their money in gold especially when you are signing a personal guarantee that's a couple of million dollars, spending money up front on some of these things that check your downside, right? Mm-hmm. Your downside risk because you don't, you really don't know what the company is till you actually sign the purchasing agreement and own the company. There is yeah. a lot of information dis- uh, dissymmetry. You don't know a lot. And you're taking a chance. So spend money up front. And there are a lot of reasonable folks, professionals in this space. Spend the money up front to make sure your downside is controlled. Would you expand on what a quality of earnings report is? Uh, Yeah. Quality of earnings report basically is, I, I break it probably into two chunks. There's probably many more chunks, but in my head, it is there's a commercial uh, aspect of it, and then there is the financial aspect. The commercial aspect is this company is in industry XYZ, let's just say machining, right? Mm-hmm. How big is the machining industry? Is it growing? Who's the local competition? Mm-hmm. Why is this company winning in this region? And what a couple of the levers that you could pull, you know, that is yeah. their pricing terrible or, you know, do they have this uh, value added thing that they're not fully leveraging or their website needs updating uh-huh. the, the commercial due diligence will give some idea of that. And this is something that you could also probably do the commercial side of it. Some of it, at least that you could do, right. Uh-huh. Then the financial due diligence is, the owner has given you a bunch of financial information, right? Whether it all actually is true, just very basically, (laughs) is it correct or not? At the end of the day, the EBITDA or the cash flow that you have put on your Excel sheet, will that actually be there when you sign the purchase agreement? Or... You know, there's something it, happening in the background that's going to make it evaporate. Is it almost a mini audit? It is. So you go in there and you look at if they say they have bills, if they say they have revenue, you're spot checking and I would say, stuff out. In, in fact, it's more than an audit. In my head, an audit is, you know, this revenue line item. He said I, he's making mm-hmm. $2 a year. I'm checking if he's making $2 million a year, but (laughs) it is more than that. It is the cash flow. So they look at tax returns. They look at bank, Mm. you know, inflow and outflow out of the bank. 
um, and your income statement. So there's three or four things that the QFE person puts together to get a very, very strong idea of whether the number is correct. Also, mm -hmm. especially in manufacturing, working capital could be a big issue where mm -hmm. quality of earnings will really tell you if you have the right amount of working capital, right? Those are a couple of big things that the Q of E can really help you with. How do you think of inventory when a shop says that we also need you to buy half million dollars of finished goods that's sitting on the shelves? What do you think about that? How do you approach that conversation? What I've learned is when a shop owner has made up their mind about a certain price and what's included in that, mm -hmm. it becomes very hard to move them from that certain price, right? Mm. Uh, but what are the components that go into that price, right? When you start digging into that, say the he says there's half a million dollars worth of finished goods that you that's included in this price. Mm -hmm. Awesome, great. So that will go kind of into the working capital calculation, right? Mm -hmm. but the due diligence that you have to do is, is that what's on the shelf? First of all, is it sellable, right? Is there a PO attached to it, right? If there's a mm -hmm. PO, great, I'll take it, right? Yes. Uh, but uh, say it's a very custom thing that you've made for a customer and that customer is really pissed off with you and not buying anything from you again, you're stuck with that, Right. That's where QFE really helps, right? And what all the people that have in that have bought companies before have told me, as part of your QFE, you yourself need to go to the shelf, count what is there yourself against what was disclosed, so you know exactly why that thing has been sitting there for three months, right? And whether it'll stay there or you know if it's something that the customer is going to buy at some point, right? Yeah. Have you gotten to the point where you have wanted to make uh, an offer, given them a term sheet or letter of intent, or actually done so? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could talk about an experience there. What I'm trying to do is, is get these nuts and bolts out that if someone hasn't made a made an offer what that's like what may be included what you're thinking about and what where the negotiation points are so yeah i've put in one loi and two ioi's so loi is letter of intent mm -hmm. and loi is intent of i, I can't remember the 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 uh, full form of IOI, but it's one level below the LOI. Right? Mm -hmm. IOI is completely non-binding. LOI has elements that are binding, that is legally enforceable. And on the LOI side, critical items that need to be on the LOI: purchase price, of course, right? Mm -hmm. uh, working capital in my deal was very very. It was a big chunk. So mm -hmm. how much working capital am I expecting within that purchase price? Mm -hmm. That was important to state. 
how much of the purchase price is coming from the owner, right? So mm-hmm. say it's a million dollars. I'm expecting the owner to finance $250,000. What does that entail for the owner? Is it a 5% interest, 10% interest paid quarterly, six monthly, right? So that mm-hmm. they can see what kind of cash flow they will get, right? With manufacturing, real estate becomes something that gets into the mix, right? They typically want to sell or rent. Now, if they want to rent, they typically state what they want as rent. And then you say, yes, I'm going to take it for this rent, but I need a lease for at least 10 years because the SBA loan is Mm. a 10 Loan and SBA will expect you to be in that place for the duration of the loan, right? Or if you're purchasing it, then what's the price you're going to offer, right? Those are the big things that I can think of. Then the legally binding part of an LOI is, it says, if you accept this offer, then I expect you to give me exclusivity for whatever, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, you Mm -hmm. can... Yeah. The exclusivity basically means I get full access to their books, everything, right? Not employees mm-hmm. or I can't speak to their employees or customers typically, but everything within their company I have access to, to do my due diligence for 30, 16, 90, whatever number of days. And in that time period, they will take the business off market. That is, they will not shop it around for that time basically because i'm spending time effort money sure uh, to take the deal forward and it would be a very it would be a big loss for me if they shop it around and it'd be like making an offer on a house and they accept it but they're still entertaining better offers (laughs) exactly exactly this has been really illuminating i appreciate you being forthcoming and sharing all the ground of what you're doing here in your your story. If we're sitting here five years from now having a follow-up conversation, what has to have happened for you to be thrilled with the outcome of your process? I would have definitely been a owner of a company Mm -hmm. with a plan, not only plan, but having executed significant growth. I'm I'm doing this so that I can grow a company. So within five years, hopefully I've at least doubled the company, at least. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is to, to grow the company. Also, one of the reasons I'm doing this is to have the flexibility to grow it a lot. And also that means taking myself out of daily operation, right? Of running a business, right? Doing that is extremely hard. And I'm hoping by end of year five, I've at least gotten out of maybe going, you know, having to, get to the shop floor and looking at, hey, how much did we make yesterday? How many units did we make yesterday? Did we have any rejects? That 
minutia. I, I, I'm hoping to have graduated to more company level metrics. Hey, the last week, did we hit, you know, what's the pipeline looking like? I'm hoping I would have worked myself up to that point. I hope in five years, we would be able to have this conversation and, and you far exceeded what you just put out there. Anything else you want to ask me before we end this? One question is, I ask owners is, if this company has been with you for this long, right? What, what drives you to sell, right? In my head, I'm a buy and hold person. Mm -hmm. if, if the company, in my head, I want to bring it to a stage where it's making enough money that I can step back, hire someone to run it, and then, you know, I just oversee it. Well, what drives, like for you, Rapid, you put in so many hours, you grew it so well, right? Mm -hmm. How did, what drove you to maybe sell? And, you know, it's a challenge, right? You, you must have spent more time at that company than with your wife and kids at some point, right? Well, it was an unsolicited offer. <laughs> and they paid 10 times EBITDA, which, oh. as you know, yeah. pretty rich. And that pl definitely played into it because for the standard multiples, I would have had to definitely be within the company for another two to three years. And who knows what's going to happen in that sort of time frame. And then the pandemic happened maybe like a little over three years, but it's, it's that sort of thing. You never, you never know when you're running a business, what's going to happen. And there's definitely ups and downs in manufacturing. I think the other part was though, I was ready to try something different. And I felt that the, uh, I tried to be aware of my capabilities and I like to follow in the words of my mentor, Dan Sullivan. And he says, there's three types of people in the world, people who make it up, people who make it real and people who make it recur. I'm definitely a make it up guy. And I can make it real. I hate to make it recur. And Rapid had really gotten to the point where to take it to the next level, you, you, it was making it recur. And that didn't interest me. Understood. The timing of their offer was good, and it allowed me to get involved in, in, in other things. And I think even today it was the right decision. Nice. Just one more question, something from what you mentioned, right? At, at any point, does it happen where you get away from this worry of you never know what's going to happen, right? Oh, yeah. I slept like a baby because I I was very financially conservative. Mm -hmm. I was always, we were always growing really fast, but I viewed it as asymmetric risk and I was really managing the downside. So I always made sure we had a month's worth of sales and cash on hand. And then our receivables was about 35 days. So I had, you know, essentially another month of cash coming in. And since our business 
turned around so quickly. We were making parts in one to two weeks. And, you know, in, in two weeks, we pretty much would have run out of business. That gave me the comfort level that I had the ability to maneuver within the cushion of cash that I, that I had in, in, in that time frame. Nice. Okay. Yeah. There's I, a... Cash is king. And I remember people uh, saying we didn't have enough debt and <laughs> that made me laugh. We had <laughs> debt. It was very, very manageable. I looked at it, you know, we survived through the 2008, 2009 downturn. And that was pretty rough. We, I think sales were down either 26 or 28%. So wow. I sort of modeled the worst case scenario. What would that look like? We were still profitable. Sure. It was hard, but we were still profitable. And that experience, as much as it sucked at the time, was a good way to model what I saw as a worst case scenario in the future and protect myself kept, and the company. You kept one month of COGS and OPEX as cash? No, one month of revenue. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Just just sitting there and then if you're listening, it, at the end, we were around 50 million in sales so we had about four million in cash sitting there that wasn't it was managed prudently it wasn't sitting in one account at, <laughs> at our regional bank but i i had cash yeah someday hopefully i'll get to that point i hope you do because as i said man i slept really well at night okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah Thanks for coming on again. The search funds was something that's new to me. And I knew of them, but you have definitely given me a lot more information and context on what they are and how they can be used. And if I am looking at buying a business in the future, it's something that I'm going to explore. I might even reach out to you to get tapped into that network. Mm -hmm. You're anonymous because you are fully employed now by this Fortune 500 company. We want to protect you until you, you make the jump. And I am looking forward to a repeat conversation with you in, well, you know, six months, a year, whatever it is. And you are now a shop owner. You've, you've got an acquisition under your belt. And I would love to have a follow-on call and, and hear the details of all that was structured and how it's going and things that went the way you thought and, and things that, that didn't, because as you said, until you actually buy the company and give them the money, you're, you're really not going to know the company. You know, but you, you do the best you can to protect yourself, but you definitely are crossing your fingers along the way. Yeah. Well, if you're listening and Thinking about buying a company, thinking about leaving your job. Hopefully we gave you some good nuggets, a framework of how to look at this. And I think that with the baby boomer retirement that's upon us, there are so many owners 
who are ready to leave their business and in response to comment why sell they're selling because it's time they want to enjoy their life or unfortunately in some cases they the health issue is forcing them to sell and regardless of the reason there are going to be so many companies that are transferring hands in the next five to ten years if you have an entrepreneurial bent i think the best way to explore this is to start to explore it talking to brokers looking at companies it doesn't mean you have to buy and what i say is a lot of learning is repetition you have to get the reps in and the more reps the more you see the patterns, you see what's usual, what's not usual. And then all of a sudden this great deal comes along. You go, this is, this doesn't fit the mold. This is where I know I can jump in and make an impact and, and be a great owner. Mm -hmm. Hopefully this conversation is, is giving you some, some courage to at least start looking at making that jump. Until next time, keep those lasers cutting and those spindles turning. Have a super day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.